This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. What's a harder battle? Getting your one-year-old to eat their vegetables, your five-year-old to go to sleep, or your 18-year-old successfully launched out of the house? Probably depends on where you are in your parenting career. As a parent of four, I often choose the wrong battle. That's probably the most frustrating to me, is choosing the wrong battle to fight with my kids. Often my wife will see that I've chosen the wrong battle and come up to me and in her sweetness and kindness say, really, you're gonna die on this hill? Apparently, yes. And she'll simply respond, well, good luck. You know, it's not only frustrating to choose the wrong battle, but it's also frustrating to be losing a battle that you're unaware of. When you're blindsided by something, when all of a sudden it seems like the world is crashing down in a battle that I was unaware I was fighting against. And this is why we're doing a series on the spiritual battle, making sure that we're battle ready to fight, not against flesh and blood. These aren't battles in our homes necessarily with our kids or parents or cousins or aunts or uncles. These aren't battles between men and women or battles between groups of people. This is a spiritual battle, battles against the authorities and rulers and powers of this present darkness. It's the spiritual battle against the cosmic spiritual forces in the heavenly places. A battle that I would imagine very few people are aware of. But if we're not aware of this battle, then it's too easy to just chalk up our days as, well, well, that was just a tough day. It's been a really hard month. It's been a rough year. It's a way in which we're losing because of our ignorance of not knowing. This is why the devil, I think, is chalking up victory after victory, unchallenged because so many people are unaware of the real spiritual battle that's going on. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to grab last week's message from Pastor Tom where he really framed the battle and and who is this adversary who hates God hates his purposes, and hates his people. Today, I want to look a little bit more at this adversary and some of his schemes. We don't want to be ignorant of his schemes. We want to know what are his methods? What are the ways in which he tries to put a stronghold or a handhold or foothold in our life to cause us problems, to take us down, to destroy relationships, and to cause many of these things in our life because we weren't paying attention. And so let's look at our adversary, not from a sense of a battle of the flesh, but a spiritual battle. Paul, who wrote these words in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God, also wrote another letter to a church in Corinth. There he said to this church in Corinth, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, devo- to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So our warfare is against an adversary who's called a deceiver, an accuser, the prince of this air, who designs lofty opinions and arguments that are assaults on the truth of God, the truth of who God says he is, the truth of, about God who of what God says about us. And so we want to dismantle these arguments so they're not strongholds or footholds or handholds 
in our life. So if you're going to begin with the schemes of the devil and become aware of what he does, where would you begin? Well, let us begin with the chief stronghold, his chief scheme, which is pride. The pastor John John Stott famously said, pride is more than the first of seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. We should begin with pride because this is where all sin stems from. And when we're talking about pride, we're not talking about the pride that we have of our family or the pride we have of our work. No, this pride is the boastful arrogance. This pride is designed to elevate us above accountability and to migrate us or move us into a place of entitlement. So that we get to a place where we say, of course I deserve. I've been working the hardest here. No one understands. Of course I will do this. No one should check in on me. Why are you asking me those questions? We become untouchable. Or we move into a place of entitlement where we say, well, if they have, of course course I should have. Why do they have and I don't have? This is the scheme of pride. To elevate us above accountability or to migrate us or move us into a place of entitlement. And both of those movements are a movement away from God because God is the true source of our strength that will lead us to victory. The devil knows that in the scheme of pride, his design is to move you, to separate you, to divide you away from God. This gets you isolated on your own. See, when you're connected with God, you're connected to the source of our victory. When you're connected to God, you're connected with God's people, the source of those who would bear with us, suffer with us, go through life's challenges together, uphold us. But if I can get someone out of their connection with God and his people, isolated all alone, well, there the devil can work us over. And if we remain ignorant to this, we will truly be saying, what happened? How did this happen? How did I get blindsided? What a great fall has happened in my life that I was completely unaware of. So here's what I wanna do. Let's look again at our adversary, this Satan, this devil, a deceiver, accuser. In another passage that perhaps you haven't been around lately, in the Old Testament, in the passage of Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's look at who he is because pride is in his character. It is the demise of his own fall. And then let's look at how he strategizes this pride in our life and what is God's precious remedies for our victory. So go with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, where the prophet is sent to the rulers of Tyre to bring judgment and a lament. Ezekiel 28 verse one begins this way. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of God. So the first judgment is on the prince. When you see this title prince, you're thinking about the chief of staff, the chief of council, perhaps a governor of a specific region. And there, his pride has elevated him to a place to where he says, I'm, I'm like a God-like ruler. And Ezekiel reminds him, you're not a God. You're a man. You're a human being, a human ruler. You cannot elevate yourself to be like God. Now, what does it have anything to do with Satan? Well, 
It goes on in verse 11, where Ezekiel is then commanded to go speak to the king of Tyre, different title, perhaps a different person. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him. So a lament is a grief and a sorrow. And you see that there's a title change. It went from prince who's chief of council to the king. This is the authority, the power that's happening. So lament over the king of Tyre and say this, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Wait, was, wait, was the prince of Tyre, the king of Tyre in the garden of Eden as a man? No, what we're seeing here is God's address to the powerful source behind this prince that has elevated him, incited him to raise up his pride, exalt him to think he's like God. This is a lament over Satan. It says, every precious stone was your covering. All these beautiful stones of diamonds and jaspers covered him. Verse 14, you were anointed guardian cherub. Is the king of Tyre a a cherub? Not in human form, but here he's talking about the angelic form. Says, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You lived, existed in God's presence. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So there's more than just a human ruler being addressed here. Someone who was in the garden of Eden, in the presence of God, was chief cherub, angel in God's kingdom. And there he says to this angel, you were filled with wisdom, anointed with beauty but you trusted in your beauty. You became proud in the source of your strength and you are elevating yourself to a position that was not given to you above God. This is what we see as this battle goes on in Revelation 12, where Satan, facilitated by his pride, goes in as a tradesman. See that it says here that he is a tradesman of his violence, a tradesman of his sin. He's a tradesman of his pride. He's marketing, he's merchandising pride to angelic hosts. And we see in Revelation 12, there he incites a third of the hosts to follow him in this prideful rebellion. And so what we see here in Ezekiel 28 is a picture behind this prince of Satan himself, who's probably incited this leader to become prideful in his own eyes and say, I'm like a God. Now that's somewhat peculiar and bizarre. Is there anything else in scripture that helps us see this? Well, remember Jesus, when he was speaking to Peter and the disciples about God's purpose for him to go to the cross and lay his life down. And there Peter hearing about the mission to the cross stands before Jesus and says, never. You can see this like boastfulness of pride. 
when Peter saying, God, you will, Jesus, you will never be put to death. Never will this happen. Remember what Jesus said to him? This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here Jesus is speaking to Peter, but addressing this adversary behind him. This this power behind him that's trying to use Peter to thwart the plans and purposes of God. And so now let's look at this adversary in the scene which we would place him in, which is the which is the Garden of Eden. Here he is, this tradesman in the garden, seen as a serpent. So go with me to Genesis chapter three. And here we'll see the beginning of this story where the serpent, a tradesman of pride, is trying to incite Eve and Adam. Verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. Take special note of this, that he is a created being. Yes, it says that he was more crafty. We saw back in Ezekiel 28, that he was filled with wisdom. So he's the most crafty serpent, most crafty one of all the beasts that the Lord had made though. This idea that Satan and Jesus are equals or dueling it out, who will win? That's, that's heresy. What you see here clearly is that God is the true and only authority. All things that have been created were created through Jesus for Jesus. And ultimately, Satan is accountable to Jesus as a created being, not on the same plane as God. And so this serpent said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you should not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's the scene. We're in Eden. God has created a good place and he's put a man and a woman in this garden. And with the authority to be rulers of the garden, I mean, cultivators of the garden, to bring forth the resources of the garden. And the serpent who hates God, hates his purposes and hates his people shows up. And he looks at it and says, okay, I want to destroy these human beings. But if they continue to abide in this garden and remain in relationship with God, they're untouchable. I can't do anything to them here. I have to separate them out from abiding relationship with God, from being in the presence of God. So how's he gonna do it? Well, he can't pull on their sin because it doesn't exist yet. He can't bring up their shame or their guilt and accuse them of it. It hasn't happened yet. And so what he comes to them and says, okay, I'm gonna have to incite their pride. Remember, he's a tradesman, a marketer, a merchandiser of pride. And there he twists God's words. Remember, he's a deceiver. So did God really say, this is one of his schemes, did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? That's not exactly what God said. He says, well, no, we can't eat of 
Not of, we can actually eat of all the trees. We just can't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. Because if we eat of that tree, God says that if we eat of that tree, we will die. And Satan says, no, 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 no. You got this whole thing backwards. If you eat of that tree, you will be like God. You will, as a man, as a woman, view, view yourself as just like God, knowing good and evil. See, you have this whole thing backwards, Eve. See, God has told you he's made this really good domain called Eden for you to live in. And he's put this tree, which is also good, but if you eat of it, it'll kill you. But that's not true. See, this garden, if you stay here, that'll kill you. You hang out with God, that'll kill you. That tree over there, that's your ticket out of here to be like God. And you know the story. She takes the fruit, gives some to her husband, and both eat it. And their eyes are open, and they bring death into the world. And everything radically changes. All of a sudden, they're no longer in relationship with God or relationship with one another, or even good relationship with themselves or creation. They fear God. They blame one another. They have shame in themselves. And all of a sudden, the creation that was good, they were going to bring forth its resources is painful toil. Death came into the world because we exalted ourselves in pride above our state that was given to us. This is the scheme of the devil to separate you from God, get you out of relationship with God alone over here so he can work you over. This was his original sin and it, he would delight if it would be yours. See, I think actually Augustine put it so well when he said it's pride that turned angels into devils. It's pride that separates us from God and becomes something that we are not meant to be. And so when you look at the storyline of the Bible, you see all of these individuals that would exalt themselves in pride and it would lead to their own death. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan author, wrote in the 17th century, he wrote a really great book that I would encourage for you to read if you have an opportunity. It's a book about the spiritual battle. It's entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in one of the devices talking about pride itself, Thomas Brooks points out that pride seeks itself, seeks how to elevate itself, to raise itself, to enrich itself, to secure itself. Pride is a self-seeking and self-killing scheme of the devil. And so when you look at the storyline, you see Adam and Eve, elevation of self, and it brings death. You start looking at the kings of Israel, like Saul and Absalom, who elevated themselves and brought their own death. You think of Stories maybe you're less familiar with, with Esther and this man named Haman who was in the court, who hated Mordecai and wanted to raise himself to a high position in the king's court and ultimately brought his own death. You can think of Judas, who did not stay in fellowship with Jesus, but tried to exalt himself, which ultimately led to his own death. Pride leads to our own destruction. We're blinded by it. Pride keeps us from knowing our own weaknesses and keeps us from seeing our own needs. Pride is a very deadly scheme that the devil loves to use to wreak havoc in our life. If none of those biblical figures ring true in your life, just think of some modern 
Christian leaders, pastors, musicians, apologists, who had elevated themselves to a place in their leadership above accountability, where they were untouchable. They had their own private bank accounts, things they could do that no one would know about, and later have been discovered that have disqualified them from leadership and have wrecked havoc on their life and their family and their marriage and the church itself. You see, the consequences for pride are great. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy, if you haven't figured it out, is just humility. If Satan, who was a created cherub, an angel of beauty and light, would not stay in his position, but tried to exalt himself and and brought down the world with this decision, Jesus is the perfect opposite. Though he was God and equal with God, did did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking on flesh, even flesh into death. And so here it is that Christ would humble himself and that we would look to the humility of Christ to see where our strength comes from. Let's go back to the New Testament and let's go to the book of James. James is actually the brother of Jesus. Probably witnessed his humility growing up saw his humility in his adolescence and into his 30s and saw his perfect humility as his savior. This is what James says. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So God opposes the proud. The proud who say, I don't need God. I don't want God. God says, okay, I oppose that. But gives grace, strength, mercy, and kindness to those who would humble themselves, who would submit themselves to God and say, God, I need you. I'm not strong enough to face these battles on my own, to face the challenges of life on my own. I need your strength. He is gracious to the humble. So submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A prerequisite of the devil fleeing from you, of resisting the devil, is that you would submit yourself to God. Why is that? It's because our victory is found in Christ's strength, not our own. We do not have the strength of ourselves to resist the devil and have him flee from us. I mean, think about this. Do you really think that you have the strength to resist the one filled with wisdom, a cherub, an angel of light who disguised himself as an angel of light, who has been adorned in great beauty, who knows all of human history, who sees our weaknesses, who knows how to get into our lives. Do you think you can resist him on your own strengths? No. Only a prideful person would think they do. So submit yourself Therefore, to God, submitting yourself to God, humbling yourself before God is what allows us to resist the devil. The devil would flee from us, draw near to God and he'll draw near to us. And so when we go to the passage in Ephesians 6 of God's spiritual armor for us, let me show you where this humility comes in, where this submission to God comes in, not in our own strength. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Do you see it there? Finally, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strong in his strength, his might, not our own. Put on the whole armor of God. Whose armor do we put on? Well, it's it's God's armor. We'd have to submit ourselves to put on his armor. We're not putting on our armor, but his. And so when it describes the armor, it's his armor that we're taking. It's his truth. It's his salvation. It's his righteousness. It's his peace. It's his word. It's his spirit. It's our faith in him. And so the the whole setup of the armor of God is that we would submit ourselves to God, draw near to God, admit our own weaknesses, to cling to him and ask him that he would give us his grace, his strength, his armor, so that we can stand firm and resist the schemes of the devil to prop us up in pride and draw us out from relationship with God, where if we would abide, we're untouchable. You see, this is the scheme of the devil. Oftentimes people ask me, I I just don't see the devil's activity in America. Where's the devil's activity in America? Look around at our culture. What is the boast of America? Is it not the self-made woman, the self-made man who's financially independent, fit and free. This is the scheme of the devil to say, you just get all out here by yourself. Build yourself up. You'll be untouchable and secure. No one will bother you. But then as he isolates you here away from God and away from community, that's where he can work you over. I think the prophet Obadiah said it so well. Obadiah 1, 3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring down me to the ground? See, the prophet is saying, pride, it's deceived you. You have secured your life on your strength, hidden yourself in the the clefts of the rock and said, who will bring me down? That's when we're most vulnerable when we have elevated ourselves above accountability and migrated ourselves to places of entitlement that we can be taken down so quickly. How quickly the prideful fall. Here's one last warning for us. Is when we experience God's grace in our life and his victory in our life and we see the devil, re- we're resisting the devil and we see him flee from us, there's a temptation to, to trust our own experiences. And I think the devil can come back in, in deception and try to build us up in our pride that we were really successful spiritually. There's a danger of spiritual pride that I want you to be aware of. And I want you to show this. I want to show this to you from the book of Luke chapter 10. In the book of Luke chapter 10, we see that Jesus has sent out the disciples and he has given them authority to go and proclaim messages and to do miracles. And they're returning and giving the most wonderful report of their ministry. Luke 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and all over the powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, 
Nevertheless, with all that spiritual victory, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he saying there? He said, okay, you can become spiritually prideful of your ministerial success and think, wow, look at all the things that we have done in the name of Jesus. What we're saying is, no, don't, don't boast about that. What you should rejoice in is that your names are written in heaven, in the family of God, that you belong to God. So in anything, if we're gonna boast, we wanna boast in the name of God. We wanna say, look at the things that we have done in the name of Jesus. That he would become famous, that we would become less, that he would become greater. So that we would be aware of how even the schemes of the devil would incite us to grow up in spiritual pride. This warns us against that. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Do not rejoice that the devil flees from you. Do not rejoice in these things. Rejoice in this, that you belong to God. So how do you belong to God? Well, it's through the the act of repentance and returning, that you would turn away from the way that you're living, that you turn away from your selfish motives and self-exaltation, you turn away from your sins and you turn to God. And in confession, you say, I need you. Father, would you forgive me through the work of your son? Would you bring me into your family in the name of Jesus so that I would belong to you? Word of repentance is to rethink, to return. This is a beautiful example of humility. Those who will humble themselves are willing to repent and come to him. But that is where our true source of strength is found. It is in his strength, in his might, in his armor, not our own. And we wanna be aware of what the scheme of the devil is as a tradesman of pride to separate us out and draw us away from God and away from the body of Christ to get us all alone and isolated. And there he will work us over. Let me just conclude with words from another pastor, South African pastor by the name of Andrew Murray. Do not strive in your own strength. Cast yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus and wait upon him in the sure confidence that he is with you and works in you. Strive in prayer, Let faith fill your heart so you will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might.